I promise, Lord, never again. But I also know that you know what a weak willed person I am. I'm a wonderful person. Let us pray. Gracious God, send forth your spirit by the power of your word to create faith, to forgive sin, and to grow our love for you and for one another. Amen. When my kids uh, back in Minnesota were part of a swim club, Northfield Swim Club, go Bull Sharks, woo um, they used to play this game at near the end of practice uh, called Penguin. And it's a fun game. It's kind of like Simon says, all the kids would line up uh, on the, the side of the pool, and one of the coaches, Coach Chris or Coach Gunner or one of, the, one of the, the other assistant coaches, they would start saying different words that begin with P, like plane, propeller, poo bear, uh, problem, party, peaches, whatever. You'd pay, whatever. If any of the kids jumped in the water on any of those words, they were out. They had to sit out. But then if they said penguin, everyone was supposed to jump in. And whoever got in the water first, they were the winner, and then you'd start the game all over. It's actually something we should have played at the youth pool party last week, but I forgot. Um, the goal being, that's a silly game, but it taught them something. It taught them quick reflexes. It taught them to pay attention to a particular sound. Why do you think you'd teach that to swimmers? So that when they're on the blocks and they hear that buzzer go off, they're in the water, right? Especially if you're swimming a short distance, like a 50, it's all about the start. Otherwise, you're basically, you're dead. You don't get to win, right? And to this day, because my daughter played that game for like, what, three years, forever, she is usually the first one in the water every single time, even now in college, and she actually, in high school, got disqualified a couple of times because they said she left too early. And you could go back and you'd watch the video. And no, she left right on time. It's just everyone else was slower. But this idea of using something silly or weird, uh, maybe even you know, just a carnival game practically, to teach something that becomes second nature, that you don't even think about it. It works with other things, too, that we do. Other games, other things that take technique, like a golf swing. Right? You have to practice that swing a billion times so you don't think about it. If you think about it, you're going to like slice or hook somewhere or miss the ball completely like me. Um, or, or other things like throwing a curveball, running hurdles, sewing stitches, heart surgery. You kind of want to practice that over and over again so you don't have to think about it. Uh, playing an instrument, right? You play all those scales. You play all those chord changes. Why? So when that comes along in the music, you don't have to think about it. You just do it. I've been playing guitar for 30-plus years. I could play in the dark most of the time without even looking at my hands because I've played so long that my fingers just know the feel of the fretboard where they're supposed to be. Using these tedious, tiring things that we get, why do I have to play scales again? Right? This repetition to make us at least competent in what we're trying to do. Well, the same thing goes for you and me in the Christian life. The Christian life is not something that happens once and then we're done. Uh, it is not as though you, you get told the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that, that God himself came to earth to the creation that hates him for the sole purpose of dying for that creation to make it new. We, we get told that, 
And unfortunately, some of us then go, oh, that, how nice of him. That was so lovely. What a wonderful story to hear twice a year at Easter and Christmas. Now let's move on to something else. Pastor, teach me how to be a better daddy on Father's Day. Well, if you haven't gotten it by now, there's probably no hope for you. Sorry, guys. Um, you know, teach me to love my neighbor better or whatever. Well, what do we hear from John this morning in 1 John? What does John have to say about love, for instance? He says, we love because he first loved us. Do you hear that? We love because he first loved us. We don't love because a pastor got up and told you to love your neighbor. It doesn't work. We've talked about this before. I can't go to my wife and scream in her face, love me, because all that's going to do is cause her to hate me, right? Or at least be annoyed by me. We don't love because I get up here and give you a 10-point plan of how to be a better dad or better wife or, or neighbor or lover or whatever. How do you learn to love? What is, the, what is the basis for our love as Christians? We love because he first loved us. Love doesn't come from you. All your love for others, all that agape love that you're supposed to spread around the world, all your love for the little old lady down the street or the grandchildren you never see, it has nothing to do with you. It is all because of Jesus. We love because he first loved us. We love, really love, truly love, because 2,000 years ago, a child was born in Bethlehem who is the one with endless perfect love who loves the unlovable. We love properly only because 2,000 years ago on a hill outside Jerusalem, that same child was crucified by sinners, for sinners, by people incapable of love in order to love them to death. We love rightly only because 2,000 years ago, that child who was crucified, born to die, was raised from the dead in order to defeat death so that your ability to love someone is not clouded by the fear that loving them might kill you. Think about it. Real love of another might cause you harm, might cost you something. Isn't, the, isn't it the ones we love the most that hurt us the most? Am I wrong? Is that not true? Mostly the people that we hate, we don't expect much from them other than to hate us. But the ones we love, if they do something to hurt us, it hurts the most. Yet because of Jesus, you can say, who cares? My Redeemer lives and loves, and therefore because he lives, I shall live and love through him. So you want to know how to love? Listen to Jesus. Hear the gospel. Dwell in Christ. Over and over and over again, be told, you are broken sinners in need of a Savior, and you have one. Your love for another grows from hearing the words of Christ regularly and remembering that you are dust given life in God. You are the one that can't love the way you should, and Christ loves you anyways. The less you think of yourself and the more you hear of this Jesus who loves you at your worst, the more his love gets poured into you and you turn that love to others. Notice that John says that God is love. He doesn't say you are love. 
The love is found in, in God, that, that our love is only from God himself. Our love is tied to abiding, to dwelling, to making a home in the love of God. This love grants us boldness before the throne, he says, because this Jesus who loves you is there as your advocate. And when we trust in Christ, we trust that his love covers us. And when we fail to love in the way we think we should, he picks up the slack. That all our fear in, in, in not loving someone enough, in not being loved the way we should be, is cast out because Christ's love is perfect. His love is complete because he loves our enemies and our friends. Our fears are cast out as we confess Christ as the only source of love and righteousness. And that's actually what we see in the story of Abraham. Many of you have been told that Abraham was this righteous man that God, oh, I'm going to use that guy because he's so awesome. No, he was a wandering Aramean. There was nothing special about Abraham. In fact, Joshua 24 tells us he was an idolater. You can go back and read it. It says that he and his father were idolaters. They were worshiping idols. But God comes to him and says, I'm going to choose you. Why? Because I want to. Because you are mine now. God making a decision about Abraham to bless him, to make him the father of many nations, the father of faith in this God who saves the ungodly because he wants to, the father of the Hebrews from which the savior of all creation will be born so as to make love complete in the salvation of sinners, where God's love for you begins before you care anything at all about even having a God. He comes to you and says, I am your God. There is nothing special about you. I did not see that you were going to have faith or be loving. In fact, most of you I picked because your faith is weak and your love is worse. So that all the work, all the love, all the righteousness is attached to me, God says. That that all you need to do is trust me and not trust someone else or something else. And even when you fail at that, which you will, have a little bread and a little wine for my table for your soul's sake, my body and blood broken and poured out for you, and be saved and perfect in love because you are in me, he says. It's also where we find ourselves with the rich man and Lazarus parable. Many times we get the sermon preached to us uh, that, well, wealth is bad, poor is good, get rid of all your money. But the rich man was in hell because he's rich, and Lazarus is in heaven because he's poor. I've heard those sermons about a billion times, especially coming out of the ELCA. Or uh, the rich man is, is in hell because he was mean, because he ignored Lazarus. And Lazarus is in heaven with Abraham sitting in his lap because he was ignored. No. What was the remedy that, that Father Abraham brings to the rich man as he complains in the flames? The, the rich man begs Abraham to send Lazarus like Jacob Marley to all his Scrooge McDuck brothers, Right? To, in order for them to not end up in hell. Like, that's the goal of the Christian life. Just don't go to hell, right? Maybe purgatory, if we have that, which it doesn't exist, by the way. But, you know, that, that's okay. Uh, but just no hell. Uh, keep, me, keep me out of there. And Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. And, and the rich man says, no, Father Abraham. Anybody have that song stuck in your head now, by the way? Father Abraham and many sons. You're welcome. Uh, it says, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Yes, maybe, unless they do the whole Scrooge McDuck thing of, you may be an undigested bit of beef or a spot of mustard, undercooked potato. Yes, there's more of gravy than of grave about you. 
right? The whole Christmas carol thing. Not believing even their own eyes of someone coming back from the dead. But yes, they might repent out of fear, not out of love. Out of fear. Which is why we hear Abraham, or that is Jesus, say it again. If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, if they, if they don't listen to the, to the word of the Lord, if they do not hear what God has to say, neither will they, or you, church, or me, be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Now, side note, this is Jesus being a little cheeky with the religious people, right? Saying, well, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they're not going to listen if someone rises from the dead. Wink, wink. Right? Because someone does rise from the dead. Who's, who's that, church? Sunday school answer? Thank you. Just if you're wondering, I, I always say that, but Jesus is the answer to most questions. Just if you're wondering. But the rich man gets condemned not because of his wealth. Even Abraham says to him, well, you were blessed. You received all these good things in your life. And that is how we talk about blessings, right? If we receive some sort of financial windfall, if, if we get a raise, if we find some financial freedom, if we pay off our debt, we'll talk about it as being, being blessed. And that is actually a good thing. Being blessed is a very good thing. In fact, the church couldn't exist without y'all being blessed. Okay? When I was on my internship, my senior pastor, who we disagreed on a lot of things like salvation in Jesus and the Bible and, you know, little tiny things. Um, but one of the things that he would do, he would go to the seminary and he'd talk to all these, these, these pastors in training uh, about stewardship. And all of these, these colleagues that I had there, and, and Chris can back me up on a lot of this, is they would, they would want to rail against the wealthy. And, you know, oh, they should have nothing. They should get rid of everything. Little communists, you know. And he would go, um, actually, no. Uh, God gives people gifts. And some people are given the gift of making money. Anybody know anybody like that? They can make, they're just good at making money. You give them a quarter and they'll have like a billion dollars by tomorrow. And then there's other people that are really good at spending money. Anybody like that? Yes, yes. Anybody in debt? Yes, yes. Oh, um, and it's like, you, you need to give thanks to God for the people that have been given that gift to make money because they're important for the mission of the church. They're important for what we do here. Never mind the fact that Pastor Chris and I like to eat and feed our families. So thank you for that, for all the blessings that God gives you. But the danger becomes what we do with those blessings, Right? You need to realize that you don't earn a blessing. It is given to you. You receive it. That is what hits the rich man the hardest. He he never saw that what he had was gift. He had the purple robes, and he had the, the lavish feasts, and he closed his ears to the scriptures that speak regularly of God giving to him for the sole purpose to give back to others. Uh, The book of Deuteronomy is a great place to go for this. Regularly in that book, the Israelites are told that God is a God who gives. And because of these gifts, we are to give. The Israelites are commanded over and over and over again a dozen times to give to the resident alien, the widow, the orphan, the least, the the, the Lazarus at at our doorfront, not to avoid hell, but because God has given to them. To not harvest to the farthest corners of your fields, but to leave that for the poor. 
to be regularly reminded through various liturgies and songs that they would sing that God gives because uh, that gets forgotten regularly. And so it needs to be sung and reminded over and over again. And God has to then pull us back to him, often kicking and screaming. But don't take away from this morning that the lesson is that you better be more loving and you better go sell everything you have, give to the poor, and follow Jesus. Because we do hear that in Luke, don't we? But it doesn't end very well. It's not like the guy that he tells that to goes, oh, okay. That is the law actually speaking to us, to convict us. And it may be convicting you this morning of blessings you've received, of, of times where you've stepped over the Lazarus in your doorway. Well, let that be. Let that sit with you. It's, it's the law speaking to you, reminding you, you are broken. You're lost. You have forgotten your blessings. You have forgotten mercy and grace. You've forgotten that Christ has loved you despite yourself, that he died for you, not because you're awesome, but because you are a sinner and he hands you his forgiveness freely, openly. He pours himself out each day to you in his words, speaking promise after promise unconditionally, where there is no if then in Jesus. It's all because therefore. Because I've saved you and redeemed you, you are. Because I have died, you will live. Because you sin, I forgive you. The takeaway is not for you to leave here a better person in order to avoid hell. Or to go out and take care of that that poor man in your doorway. It is to be rescued from the fact that you probably won't accomplish those things on your own at all. It's to rescue from the fact that you fear those things. Or you don't and you should. It isn't our fears that God's love must become truly love for you. That's how Luther talks about it, the proper application of the pronoun. That it's not, well, God loves you as some sort of general, hi, how's it going? But no, that God loves you. That he's for you. It is in fear that our Jesus has to come to us and hand us a sweet gospel that it may be sweet again in order to overcome our fears. Now, does this mean that you shouldn't care about Lazarus and you should just go off and do whatever you want? No. You should worry about Lazarus. You should take care of, your, of Lazarus. You should, should do what you can for those that are here because, as Luther says, God doesn't need your good works. Your neighbor does. God has blessed you to be a blessing. He has given you gifts to be shared, not hoarded like like some Viking earl who thinks he's going to take it with him. But know this, church. You will miss one. There will be a Lazarus you do not love. You'll forget sometimes. You'll step over someone. You will lose sight of the blessings of God. That that is why you must listen again and again. Hear the word of the Lord. Be made anew each time you hear it. Let the Spirit do for you what I pray every time I get up here to preach to you. May God send forth his Spirit by the power of his word to create faith, to forgive sin, and to grow your love for him and for one another. Thanks be to God. Amen.